This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Thanks for joining me on the Football CFB podcast, Gordon. Pleasure. I'd like to start, obviously, you're at, at Cove Rangers now with Paul Hartley. You'd worked with Paul before and we'll come to that later. See, when you get into Cove, you inherit a successful team. How strange is that? Because normally when you take over a job, it's a kind of firefighting process, not just for yourself, but any manager and any coach. It is a bit surreal because, uh, like you say, I've gone into one or two clubs where it's either been a rebuilding job or it's been a low-confidence uh, exercise or it's been... Um, about actually restructuring uh, the club so it was it was quite rewarding and, and encouraging when we spoke to the people at Cove you're inheriting um, a successful team uh, because the last three years they won the Highland League um, so you're hoping confidence is high you've also got that um, you've, you've got a group of people that have been used to winning uh, and that was important for us so it definitely made our job a lot easier In terms of coming in obviously you've worked with Paul before What's it all like now with Cove? Because it's not a full-time club. Is it different to what you're used to? Absolutely. I struggled and I've already gone to press about this. Um, I played most of my career part-time. So I thought, you know, this is this is a mirror image. But having coached full-time for 20 years, I really found it uh, difficult at the start. And it's only down to the calibre of the players and, and the application of the players that's it's turned me around. Um, it was a no-brainer for a, you know, get back with Paul uh, and, and Tam Ritchie as well. We work really well together. But the first couple of months, I must admit, I've got the extra uh, chore because I travel up to Cove. Um, but I meet Tam at Dundee with a great player. Sometimes I meet players. I've got a great wee relationship where his missus makes soup, my missus makes wraps. And the player, <laughs> I, I, they want to sign for Cove just because, <laughs> because of the hospitality. But I get, get back to the part-time thing. We put so much effort into preparing players for the game. I'm not driving two hours just to have a wee game of five-a-sides. Paul's no um, putting his, 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 his effort and his energy into just being a, another Me Too product and we just kick about the leagues, albeit the, the, the seriously objective was to stay up this season. So it's been, it's been really pleasing that we're in the situation we are just now. But I'm now in a much more comfortable place in, in terms of coaching at the part-time level because of what they've given me. Every training session we prepare to play the next match, we've got probably four hours to cram into two nights so we've not got a lot of time to waste and and the reception I've had for the players um, as is Paul has been fantastic It's been a great season you mentioned that so far the club are flying high in League 2 and I know as a coach and Paul's a manager you don't like singling out individuals but there's three in particular I'd like to mention Mitch Meganson what a player he is Brody McAllister and you signing in January another proven goal scorer and Fraser Fivey who I spoke to in the podcast recently What's the standard like from being been like for the whole group of boys in that league in general? Well, reiterate what I said earlier, that they've played together for a couple of years, so the the management team before us have did a fantastic recruitment job. They've probably assembled the better they have assembled the best players in the Highland region or in the Aberdeenshire region. Um and, and that, that was that was a big um help to us. The the guys you're talking about, um sometimes singling players out 
is not fair because the group of players, the, the, the whole group, I think are like a wee family unit because they've been assembled. We've brought a couple in through, we've, we've used the loan market well, or hopefully we, people see that we've used the loan market well. But Mitch Meganson, I'd never worked with him before. Um, and I, I firmly believe that if you've got good goal scorers in your team, if you look at Stephen Doby, Community of the South, he would either keep them up or put them in a position of, of challenging. If you look at Morelis and Edward at Rangers and Celtic, if you look at Goodwillie at Clyde, they've all got players that either make them challenge for titles or, as say, keep them away from relegation. And it's such an important area of the field. Meganson scored like 50 goals in the Highland League. And the, one of the first things that we said to him was, look, although we're going up a league, you'll still score a lot of goals. And a return of 25 would still be a massive, a marvellous effort. And he's sitting there with 23 goals with nine games to go. And that's down to his application and his work rate. And he's like the rest of them. He's a pleasure to coach. It's been a great season so far. And obviously, you take nothing for granted. I know the club doesn't take in for granted. But what's the ambition for yourselves over the next couple of seasons? Because obviously, you mentioned it always to stay up. But you've done far more than that already. But what's the ambition going forward? I think we will stay up this year. <laughs> but the, well, the, the plan, the, the talking to the chairman and, and talking to the people around about the club, they're, they're ambitious, but they're, they're realistically ambitious. You know, it's easy to say, oh, well, you could do a great now, you could, you could label it any club that's went for, for bottom to top, we, we know of sound financial backing. That was a one individual uh, show, and I remember it because when I was at Motherwell, Gretna would play out in Motherwell, so I knew how fragile they were as a club. I knew how probably um, unsustainable it was as a club. So just uh, without being too patronising towards the board at, at Cove, they're a different type of people. And j- just realising they're a board instead of an individual. It's not a, it's not a sugar daddy that's, that's got a wee play thing um, to get Cove through the leagues, but they've got healthy ambition to develop as a club internally and externally on and off the pitch. I'll come back now to, to where you sort of started in your, your coaching um, career. You are most well known for obviously, first of all, being an academy director at Motherwell. What's it like when you're working in an academy in terms of, are you involved with a specific team or do you oversee the whole development from maybe under 10s upwards? Well, a bit of both. Um, I, I'd gone in, I was finishing up playing um, 20 years ago now. Um, an ex-Motherwell player, Peter Miller, um, he was his boot boy at Motherwell. Um, he, he bought me twice um, in the juniors so he couldn't have known a player that well <laughs> but he, he really he really helped me I, I was never really going to be the a few canvas people I played with they'd probably, I'd probably be the least player they'd say would be the coach because I like to laugh and um, I, I wasn't really that I wasn't that driven really to be um, a coach but the academy systems were, were, were being introduced or evolving at Motherwell uh, are all over Scotland and, and, and the UK it was going for boys club level into what they called pro youth, but I never liked that term pro youth because they're only they're only kids. But with, with an academy system, um, I really started to enjoy working with the younger players. Um, and I first went in as under fifteens coach, and then I was seventeens coach, um, and I, I struck up a great relationship with Chris McCart, who then was the next person that gave me the leg up because he was identified at Celtic with Tommy Burns. Uh, to go in and, and, and look after Celtic's um, system and what a fantastic job he's done. I'm then so grateful that he thought I had some ability and he recommended to the board 
that I should uh, I should take over uh, from him. Uh, no interview required. Just a recommendation that here's a guy in the uh, in my system that that knows the club, knows the uh, the youth system, and I became academy director. And and that the remit there is to oversee everything from pre academy, which is eight to tens, all the way through to the really anything below the first team, and. I'm very fortunate and very proud to have managed every every team from under ten to the first team. Uh, being a Motherwell fan, that's been a, a, a terrific honour for me. You've worked with many incredible young players during your time at Motherwell. How proud, as an academy director, are you and the likes of like Paul Slane, Bob McHugh, boys you've worked with, make it the first team? It's not just, it's not down to me. It's down to you know the staff that you you assemble. You, you assemble um, a recruitment department. You assemble a coaching department. And it takes about seven, eight, ten years to see the fruition. You, these people work so hard every night in the academy. They're in four nights on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday. They're not the best paid. They've either got a love for the game, a love for the club, a bit of both, or they're on, on the ladder to go into better things. Some of the coaches and, and uh, scouts we had at Mother were fantastic. And they laid the roots for likes of McHugh's and, and Murphy's and... Um, the uh, Hutchison going to uh, Millwall from there, Mark Reynolds going to Sheffield Wednesday for that. There's so many in Motherwell's system. You then had a next generation, and what I tried to put in place was a succession plan, and it and it took those years that then we got the Cadens through, the Turnbulls through, the Hasties through, and then below that you were looking at McKinstries, you're looking at James Scott that's just going to Middlesbrough. So all of these you don't see them, or the punters don't see them for for ten years. But you've brought them in as nine-year-olds, you've brought them in as ten-year-olds, you've sold the dream to their parents, you've given them what I thought was a, a pathway to play with your first team. Um, the, 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 the ones that were that, that were not just interested in the glory of being the best under 13 and winning every week. and So that's an easy way to go to the old firm because they've got the best players, and they've got the best facilities. What I tried to sell to the, uh, the, you know, the Turnbull's parents and the Hasty's parents was that Sign for Motherwell, stay at Motherwell, and when you're ready, Motherwell will sell you. It's a win-win for everybody. You then go to the old firm as a recognised player rather than a young kid that can get lost in the system. So that was always a challenge for me. Um, I had great support from the board. I had great support. I had a smashing working relationship with all the first team managers because Motherwell, like maybe your Kilmarnocks and St Mirrens of the day, we, we were in a, like some Motherwell, just out of administration. Um, and we we didn't have the finances that we could put heads of this department or so I was first team coach and I was also academy director so while you might think that's a big workload it, it was a absolutely thoroughly enjoyable experience and it gave me a wonderful insight in how to bridge young players to the first team because you then you had to trust the, the incumbent managers and they would say is he ready I remember Stuart Carswell making his debut he'd played with the under 19s on a Friday and Stuart McCall said I think Keith Lasley got injured could we put him in and you know the character of the players so you know you're you're in a position to say ah he's ready or I wouldn't put him in now you've got Lee Irwin there another one that went to Leeds United um, you bring him in as a, a 10 year old it's fantastic you see them developing as people and I remember we played Panathinaikis in the Champions League uh, qualifying round and we had seven academy players playing and that, that, that was fantastic. Brilliant. And then if you threw in like Hamill and Lasley, you've actually got nine out of the 11. I think only Darren Randolph and maybe 
I'm trying to think who the other player would be, but it was maybe Stephen Jennings or or somebody like that, or Tom Hately, or you know, we had we had so many young players. We we also used to go down south and we'd bring like Adam Cummings up from Everton and and uh, uh, Francis Angle up from Tottenham and Stephen Hetherington up from down south. We had, we had so many young players, and it, it, it's the environment that I, I hope that we created that attracted these players. When a young boy gets called up to the first team. You've obviously known them for, for years before they get to that stage. What do you say to them when they get called up for the first team debut? Do you do you even just say, keep it simple and play your game? Or do you sit them down and give them a bit of advice to calm them before they get into such a big occasion? Well, again, I, I was lucky and maybe the, the the way the club was structured, I'd be there on a match day. So I always remember that, that Carswell was always a, a big one for me because we played at Tynecastle, 16,000 fans on, on the Saturday. played with the 19s on, on the Friday. And I remember standing in the, or behind, just beside the dugout and coaching him through the game. But he was such a great listener and he had such a great attitude that after a couple of games, he just become accepted. But you had that relationship with him. You could talk to him in the bus, you could talk to him in the dressing room. Uh, so you, you were that wee caveat that the manager needed to make sure the kids were right. And 9 out of 10, Stephen Saunders is another kid that I, I just had so much time for. He some half personal... Uh, bumps in his life and I, I, I wish the likes of him and uh, McHugh had gone all the way to full international level Stephen has got one cap but I thought Bob McHugh was the best striker of his age group um, all eight years ago and they, they're you know a lot of I know they say the cream will rise to the top but these these are guys that I thought had exceptional um, attitude um, and they've, made, they've made good careers which I'm also delighted it's, it's been so surreal for me now having been abroad and coming back and I'm now working in the second division and every game we play, every team we play, I'll come across a player that's been at Mullow, uh, <laughs> which is a fantastic uh, testament to the club that we've got players that maybe have played with the first team, have not played for the first team, but are still in the professional game. What upset me in England was 65% at the time had, had got academy contract, a uh, schoolboy, uh, what do they call it? Um, the schoolboy the when when they when they serve their apprenticeship, um sixty five percent be twenty three are not playing football. And and I th- I I thought that was staggering. These these kids that are getting in there as uh, academy scholars um are supposed to be the best at every club. But if you do the mass, there are only so many can make it. Um but probably which doesn't help in England is the amount of foreign players that are that are brought in there. But that, that's a damning statistic. If you think about what what you've really worked towards for your ten, your sixteen, and sixty five percent of them in the country are actually not making it as players, no playing football, not just playing in lower leagues, but no playing. See, when a player you mentioned Bob McHugh there, who you said was one of the best at his age level, and you thought he could have been on going on to be a full international. See, when a player like Bob leaves the club, and you've played such a big part in his development, do you keep in touch with him when he leaves the club just to to sort of? don't want to say G him up because obviously he's not going to have a good career he's doing well at Morton now but do you keep in contact with him to, to just look at look out for him in the sense that when any player leaves a club especially when they've come through the academy it must be hard well um, I always I always thought that when you're when you've when you've got a sound academy structure and, you, and you've got a, a a solid curriculum I felt that if you came through the front door you went out the front door so I didn't like anybody ever to leave under a cloud um, and, and I used to be on record as saying you could have been here for a week you could have been here for a month you could have been here for 10 years with a testimonial 
whatever level you leave at, I think you should leave in the same way that we wanted you to come in. And I'm not a big fan of keeping, um, you know, contact with players as you leave. It goes into the hundreds. But I'm flattered that a lot of players will, will text me to say, ask for my advice if they're moving clubs or just things that have, um, are maybe happening in their game. I'm not one of these people that, that, you know, every week or every day I talk to players that I, I've worked with. I'm, I like to think I'm there if they need me. Um, another flattering uh, compliment is attending their weddings and you know um, I'm not a massive I'm, I'm not a social media uh, fan at all but I like to see them if they've uh, settled down in life if they've got families um, and it's crazy because I see some players that I've, I've actually coached that have now got young kids <laughs> playing you know coming through the academy system so that's uh, that's the nice part of the job the, the, the downside of the job is when you ever let somebody go um, I took no pleasure into having to release a player. Um, I always did it with a holistic viewpoint that when I, when I spoke to my coaches, I used to ask them, do you think he'll play for our first team? And as long as we thought that, you know, we stuck with the player. If for whatever reason, you know, they, they, they start to stagnate, they start to plateau, um, other people are going past them, then I, was, I always thought it was honest to say, look, I don't think you'll play for, for Mother's first team. So we would always look at our exit strategy, how we could help them firstly stay in the game. And then I was quite, I always thought we were ahead of the game um, when we identified that players no longer had a, a pathway at the club and we tried to introduce them to like, pitch to podium. Could they be another type of athlete? Had they academic capabilities? Did they look at scholarships, you know, this country and abroad? So it was never the easiest thing to, to let kids go, but I'm, I'm so proud that uh, so many people have made it. You worked with the academy for so long and as you mentioned, you combined that with being a first team coach for a while, then you, you work with the first team on a daily basis. What are the difference, that, or if there are any differences between working with the academy teams and the first team on a daily basis? It's easier the higher you go because if you've did your work with the younger ones, it's like, you know, it's like teaching a, a dog, it's like you get, get the puppy and you teach it how to how to use a toilet, you, you teach it how to walk, you teach it how to heal, you, you teach it not to uh, lick off the plate. And if you do that with the young kids, it's the habits you install into them. As they go through the systems and whatever club you get to, it's you've it's, it's really about polishing. When, when you're working at first team level, I think now it's more man management than it is actual technical development. Having said that, I still believe you can improve. I don't believe that, uh, you know, because you're 25 or because you're 30, that you can't stop improving. That could be improving tactically. It can be improving, you know, physically. It can be improving just mentally, your attitude to the game. So I think it's much easier coaching at first-team level than it is academy level. And I did try to put my best coaches to the young, the young groups. Working with the first-team, obviously, you've worked with so many good managers, great managers over the years. I want to ask you about Craig Brown. I recently interviewed Craig on this podcast and you know Craig, he said, I said, how long will this podcast take? He said, I said about 40 minutes or so, Craig. I was on the phone to him for three hours. <laughs> what was he like to work with? Because when I spoke to him, he wanted to just talk football all day. Absolutely outstanding. I had three years with, with Craig and Archie Knox and that was, that was like going to university. That was going to the university of man management. They were so great to work with. They were so good to me. Um, they, they showed me massive um, respect and 
for them to ask me advice on certain things was just so humbling. But they were terrific. They were the honestly the funniest duo. And the best comment it used to be me the players would call him Jack and Victor. But and Brun. Brun just was was just I start, I keep in contact with him. Now he comes to the Cove games, um he's offered me, me his flat in Aberdeen. Um, the first thing when I sent me Cove, the first uh, text I got was for Craig Brown saying, Listen, I've got a property here. If you need it, uh, there's key under the mat. And what what I that's the last guy that took Scotland to a major uh, tournament. And everywhere you go in the game, he's he's always got a smile. He's all there's always a story about him. When I went to Latvia with the national team with Mick Sue, um, first uh, lunch date I had um, with, with the camp, uh, the president comes down, I get introduced to him, and he didn't realise I'm Scottish. He's, he thought I would like, I'd be, you know, same country as Mick Sue. And he, oh, you're Scottish. He said, you're not a good friend of mine, Craig Brown. And that that was and that was us. And then we started talking about Craig and. Um, when we were fortunate enough to be in Europe every year with Mother with with some great runs. Everywhere we went, any country, the media were always looking for Craig. If we sat in the lobby, the hotel, whoever was the the big name in the country would come and look for Craig. Um he's such a, a great standing in the game and I've got fantastic uh, respect for him and he calls me a colleague, which I take that as a friend. Um came to my daughter's eighteenth. Um, that's the kind of standing the man's got um, top man for me what's the kind of funniest thing you've seen Craig do in the training ground because he has a character as you've said he always had a word he'd always know the right thing to say to people um, and, and <laughs> some of the him and Archie the stories were just so off the tongue <laughs> you know when you're sitting there every morning you've got Sky Sports on and you're, you're preparing for training and whoever came up on the TV Craig or Archie would know him personally. They would then go into half an hour about whatever happened. I mean, <laughs> and then, then, then his phone would go and it'd be Gerard Tooley. Or then the phone would go and it would be um, Brian Robson. It would be Ray Wilkins. It would be, it was a who's who, Glenn Hoddle then. Uh, they were just, they were that so well thought about. We, we're lucky to have people like that that have represented our country. Um, but I, honestly, I could say every day, I could tell you a funny story every day. I remember one day we were in the office and come back for training, so we're having a cup of tea, and these just were like, these were these were things like see if it was on still game, you would you would roll about the, the carpet. It was just so off the cuff humour. They used to talk about Brun's glasses. Him and Archie shared the glasses, so they're hunting up and down the office. Brun, where's the glasses? Where's our <laughs> glasses? So for twenty minutes, they're through cupboards and drawers. They're in the top of Craig's head. <laughs> At that point, the secretary comes in, a really good family friend of mine, Karen Patterson, who's does what a wonderful job at Motherwell. She's saw so many managers through there. She's probably the most important person at the club. And her office was in between mine and Craig's. So she comes in and says, Gordon, listen, uh, Craig's late for that meeting. So I go in and I say, they were in, we're debating something else now. So she comes in and says, Craig, listen, you're, you're, you're meant to be that uh, two o'clock meeting today. He went, oh, forgot all about it because he, he wouldn't let MD down. He would see his diary. It would, it would be, he'd never decline an invitation, not an invitation, but um, a request for him to do something. He says, oh, sorry, Karen. What was it again? She went, oh, it was an Alzheimer's meeting you were going to talk at. <laughs> He's forgot to go. <laughs> so her chinks, this is brilliant. <laughs> Look at the state of you, Brown. You've got that Alzheimer's now. 
Uh, and that was every day. Every day was just a line after line after line. But for all the laughter, his tactical knowledge was terrific. Absolutely terrific. He just he knew how he knew a wee tweak here or a wee tweak there, and he was just a, a great a great person to work with. Archie Knox obviously worked with Sir Alex, known as being a sort of fierce competitor. But at that stage when he was at Mellow, the Mellow, there was he still he was still Archie Knox. Aye, no, you can't. That's that's the way you are. It's, you, <laughs> you can say you're Mellow, but if you're, I'm not saying with Paul. Paul laughs at me now. He, he's like I'm like Archie, and he's like Craig. I think that's your. You say to me, don't. What are you getting worried about, young man? Just don't. We need to let it go. I'm no. I'm. Remember one day. I'm going to get beat at half time. So Craig would always say, right, we'll give him a couple of minutes to let them work it out. Archie's not having it. He just goes into the restroom. And he hits this plastic box, a kick. You know, one of the boxes that you get out of B&Q and you, everybody stores their stuff yep. in the house. Well, kick me and I've got loads of them because the socks, the slips are in there. His fit goes right through the box. <laughs> and he's trying to shake it off. It's no like a song and dance thing. And it's stuck to his foot. So the players just crumble. And Archie, just... That was it. They took the heat right off it. We probably got one three one or four one. Um, but somebody was asking the other day the best game ever involved with them, and and it, it'll never leave me. The six six draw we oh. have. Six two, we're getting beat with seventeen minutes to go, and we came back and drew six each. And you know you get the stories that because I'm local to the town, people will tell me I actually went out and I came back in. I went out at 6-3 and I came back in at 6-5 and I went out at 6-4 and I came back in at 6 each and that's because it was the last home game of the season and historically at Motherwell the players do a lap of honour so they're getting beat 6-2 and it's hard to swallow and they, you know half the crowd go out but by the end of the game there's actually more people in the stadium than there was at the start of the game because it was like one of the just Roy the Rover stories and we miss a penalty win 7-6 which is incredible but that was the best game I've ever been involved in my life is that a game well, I suppose how often do you see 6-6 is that a game that you think will probably never be top because you just remember even the obviously I watched it at the telly wasn't at it but I just from watching the telly I remember Ian Crocker's commentary and big Jukovic getting a goal of volley it's just unbelievable well again later on in life I would work with John Rankin uh, who scored in that game for Hibs uh, and, and Graeme Smith you know the goalkeeper yep. we played against him on Saturday and that, that's how parochial or insular football is here that uh, it just it was a it was a crazy night because the two of us were vying for a European spot and people forget that on the sat on the Sunday at the last game of the season we were at Ibrox and we were getting beat three nothing at half time and we came back and drew three each. So that got us the European spot. So you can imagine for entertainment, nine goals in two games, of which you were seven goals behind. <laughs> it's it's crazy. It's people don't dig into that. Um but it, it was it, it, now now as a coach, it's one I keep in my back pocket. If we're ever getting beat at half time, I know there's never a game gone now. It's impossible. They talk about the miracle Istanbul, and I'm sure Stevie Gerrard talks about that. See if you've had the experience, you can always. That gives you hope. So if I'm ever in a dress room at half time, I'll say, look, I remember, and because it happened to me, and it's it's true to life, I'm I'm quite comfortable talking about it. If somebody other somebody else that wasn't there talks about it, then okay, it's. It's it's uh, motivational and it's uplifting, but I, I I live that so I can talk about it and I, I can believe in it. That's the most important thing. I believe in it. Working with Craig and Archie was obviously an absolute joy, as you've said. 
there's a whole saga, is Craig going to go, is he not? He ends up going, obviously, to Aberdeen. Your caretaker in charge, three games, Hearts, Rangers, Celtic. What's it like being a caretaker manager, especially given those fixtures? Nobody's touching that job. Nobody's touching that job with those fi- And it's Christmas time. Um, but the players were absolutely fantastic. Uh, it, it was a hard run of games. Hearts were actually top of the league that, at that time and had a really good side. Then we had Rangers at home in Boxing Day and, and uh, away to Celtic at Parkhead on the 28th or 29th of December. And then Stuart McCall came in right after it. Um, so uh, it was a hard day. Uh, it was a, a two or three week period. But I kind of resigned myself to that nobody's coming in. You've, you've got to think about you know a new manager coming in. Because the game after that was Hamilton Ackies. So, and being the poor relations in Lanarkshire, it was an easy one for a manager to come in and win. <laughs> uh, but that no, was great. It was, uh, it was terrific. I really enjoyed it. Um, and again, down to players. Players were, players were outstanding. When you're in that caretaker situation and you're picking the team, are you looking ahead to think, if I can get a couple of results here and I've got a chance at the job, or are you just totally focused on doing what's best for the time period you're there? No, I, I mean, uh, Craig Craig recommended to the board that they should consider me. Um, and also later on, um, he, he said in the, you know, in, the, in the press that the biggest mistake at Aberdeen was not taking me with him. Uh, and again, that was that was very humbling um, for him to, because you're, you're talking about somebody that's not doing it out of blind friendship, you know, somebody that's not doing it uh, with any, any personal motivation. Um, it, it's somebody that, from a professional capacity, um, said those things. So I never wanted the job. Um, I didn't think I was ready for the job at the time. One or two players had said to me, look, we think you should, how you've handled it, uh, we'll back you. But I just felt the academy at the time, and I'm so glad because I, I spent another two or three years at the academy and um, hopefully, I always use the, the All Blacks analogy, you know, leave the jersey in a better place than you got it. And I'm... I'm Hopefully that was the case because another two or three, I had things that I wanted to do at the academy. I wasn't finished there. I knew when I was moving on that I was ready to go to another level, but there was things that I was working on at the academy that I, I wanted to see through. Um, so it was never a, it was never a, 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 a career changer for me at that time. It would have been later on down the line, you know, when I got to Dundee United, uh, then that was totally different. Um, I felt at the time, while I worked fantastically well with we, we mixed with part of lining, uh, the circumstances meant there was more games and it was towards the end of the season. Um, it was a club that was in turmoil. Um, that was needing rebuilding. I had already all these academy years experience. I had um, international experience behind me. So I really felt at that time um, I, I'd, I was ready for the job. And I was never interviewed for it. I was never offered it, um, which I thought was pretty strange. But then... Everything Dundee United was strange at that time, so I can understand. Before we come on to, to Dundee United, you were at Motherwell, as you say, stayed with the academy for another couple of years. Then you go down south to Sheffield United and you're the international academy manager there. How was that role different to Motherwell and what was it like, obviously, working down south? I, I needed it probably at that time. Um, I'd been 13 years at Motherwell um, in every capacity, even as a young kid. You know, I was, uh, played with the reserves but never played with the first team. I uh, played with the boys' club, which was the academy at the time, um, and and, and I could have, I probably could have been there, you know, yet yeah, mother. That's nearly ten years. Um, I could probably still have been there, but I felt I needed a new challenge. Um, it was through a a contact. 
John Stevenson, who used to be at Celtic, again way back when when uh, the academies were being uh, formed at the time, he was he was a uh, the person that, that Celtic looked to to bring experience which he which he had at Watford, and he was part of a group of people. If you if you start to name um, uh, Malky Mackay and Joe McBride and Nick Cox, who I worked with Sheffield United, Brendan Rogers. Uh, Ross Wilson, they're, they're all people that were all part of that academy and, and they were lauded as being kind of forward-thinking people and I can understand that. So uh, an agent had uh, put me in touch with John Stevenson about this role um, and w- when they mentioned it to me, I thought, you know, this is this is something that's it's no me leaving Motherwell to go to another Scottish team, it's no me leaving, you know, to go to the, the same role. This, this was opening up the really the world to me and the model that they were putting together um, that they asked me to roll out again gave me fantastic experience um, about how different football was. My first job was going into India and working with a, the partner club they had in India and just looking at a culture there that were first training session I went to, they were training for four hours in 35 degree heat. It was mental. Uh, this was in the morning and then they went back out for two hours in the afternoon and they just didn't get less is more they just got more is more. And then when I looked at the medical records, they, every player had chronic injuries because of the facilities, because of the over um, use of their bodies, because of their lack of sports science. Um, so that was a massive challenge going in and reorganising uh, that club. But I, I used my knowledge at, at Motherwell and I, um, I, I was able to you know, put experience I had uh, to work in another culture, another continent, um, which was, again, not many people get the chance to do that. Uh, and I, I loved every minute of it. You mentioned that you loved every minute down at Sheffield United and obviously working abroad is part of your role. You returned to Scotland at Dundee United as number two to mix with Pat Alainen. Why did you leave a job at Sheffield United to return home? Was it just the, the lure of getting back involved in first-team football too much to turn down? I had a year to go at Sheffield and again they were wonderful people, they were very similar to Mullow, it's a steel town, you know, so many synergies there, um, real real hard working guys, the the structure of the club, the, the owner Kevin McCabe, just, it could be me and you sitting talking just now, just I, I, I think he, you know, he loved the Scots, Sheffield liked the, the Scottish market, so I get involved with a lot of players that are moving back and forward, um, again I'd like to think I could still have been there because of the job I did. Um, they, they made that they made that clear to me but when Mick had phoned me he says look Dundee United what a chance this is to go in there uh, by this time Mick and I had been developing a friendship um, about if we worked together what we would do at clubs um, and he, this was another really a real thinker of the game um, a, a, a good a good student of the game uh, a knowledgeable tactical he, he actually probably engaged me more in the tactical side of the game than, than a lot of people I'd met up until then um, and I had no hesitation when he phoned me Sheffield were great because they said look again it's no leaving to go to another academy it, it, I explained to them that this was a chance for me to do something else to further my career so they kindly uh, let the last year of my contract go and again they said that the, the draw to Dundee United was Although Sheffield United were a, they're a massive club and I'm, I'm so delighted where they are. I'm a Sheffield United fan in England and I'm so pleased they are where they are in the Premiership. They had, it wasn't their aspirations. They're a Premiership club. 
they'd sunk to levels they shouldn't be at um, and, and they, they had a strategic plan to get back there so I'm, I'm so glad that they're, they're back where they belong but Dundee United are a big club in Scotland to be assistant manager where it was a, a green get another honour uh, the, the fans were great to me um, it's a great club I just think it was in the wrong hands at the time um, but what they had sold Mixu and I was the club needs rebuilt and you could see that when we went in they had 57 players they had 40 central midfield players they had 6 goalkeepers they had no defenders but they'd lost 3 or 4 top players um, you know the Armstrong and, and Mackay Stephen and Chifty and wee boy Gold and Andy Robertson they'd lost these players so they were, they were needy rebuild and we thought and we were given that assurance that we would give we were given at least 3 years to turn the club round and even if they get relegated which was looking as much as we we tried everything to keep you know to stay up we never got beyond two wins in a row we lost nine games for a winning position it was fated I think we lost the Dundee derby live on the TV to put us down all these things I, I, I sometimes think are fated um, and, and we tried to go in again worked with a great group of people uh, worked our socks off they, they were desperate to stay up we didn't have any money we had to sell John Souter and uh, Ryan McGowan in the first transfer window we were shopping in our, you know, we're shopping in a basement bargain shop uh, to try and bring players in, short term to stay up. But then we had a plan to how we would, we would restructure the club. We had, to, we had to take a lot of cost out of it because the, having so many players um, wasn't practical, wasn't economical. Um, but the game plan changed. The owner was was pretty vulnerable himself uh, to the fans who didn't think that he had done a good job over the years. So, and I, probably for him to save his situation, I, I felt it threw Mixu under the bus. And with that went the, the, the plan that we had to restructure the club. Uh, and that was a massive disappointment. But when I, when I talk about fate, we played in the semi, we got through the semi-final of the Scottish Cup. People didn't realise that year. And we played Hibs, who were in the Championship, who'd gone to win the Cup. And that, they had no goalkeeper, and they brought Conrad Logan up. And without being unkind to Conrad Logan, he was three stone overweight. On that day, after the first 20 minutes, when we actually should have been down 2-0, after that, we battered Hibs. And Conrad Logan, I think, is probably an iconic goalkeeper now in Hibs's history, for it to be part of the team that, that's the only team ever to win, you know, win the Scottish Cup in their history. And that day against Dundee United, he saved three penalties against us. He, he had just one of the games that you, you can't make up. And sometimes I just think Dundee United was a poison chalice. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased because they're in a position now to go back up to the Premier League. But it's taken five, six years. And we were we had plans of doing what the likes of Robbie and I know Tony Ashkars came in to, to head up the club. And they were the things that we were we were looking to do. So I'm actually in a... As I sit talking to you just now, Sheffield United are fifth top of the Premier League. <laughs> Motherwell's third top of the, the Scottish Premier League. Dundee United's top of the uh, Championship. Falkirk's joint top of the First Division. And Cove Rangers are, are top of the Second Division. So it actually feels quite nice to know you've been in the clubs. Rather than a year ago if we did this interview, I'd be saying Motherwell are seventh in the league. Falkirk have been relegated. Dundee United didn't make the playoffs. Cove Rangers in the Highland League. Sheffield United in the Championship. So sometimes it is just about fate and luck.
you mentioned there about, in your view, Mixu was very hard done by, considering the circumstances and the promises that were made. You mentioned the, the, the owner, the chairman there at Dundee United at your time, trying to save his own bacon, maybe by getting rid of Mixu in the way that he did. You obviously, after that, are linked with the job, caretaker charge. Did you want the job? I did, I. At that time, um, perversely, I was angry because of the Mixu situation um, and the fact that me and him still stayed so close and we'd worked together after. Um, I still thought that, and, and Mixu said to me, look, if you got offered the job, you take the job. You need to look after yourself. Um, I thought I was ready for, for, for that step up at the time. The backroom staff had said to me, look, we think you're, think you're, uh, you're the man. The players, albeit they were in a bit of a churn, because we had a lot of foreign players that were going out of contract. We had some players that were, you know, uh, some experienced ones that were going out of contract. And we had a, a lot of young players. Um, I still thought it was a great opportunity. Um, and, I, and it was one I would have taken. But I can tell you, I was never spoken to about it. I was never offered it. I was never interviewed for it. I was never considered, I don't think, for it. Because I think they had somebody lined up um, as Mick Sue was in the car park. You mentioned the fact that you thought somebody else was lined up. Ray McKinnon comes into Dundee United as a manager. You were obviously at the club. You were under contract with the club. You mentioned you'd spoken to Mick Sue. He'd said if you get a chance to stay at the club as manager or what have you, stay. Did Ray McKinnon ever ask you to stay? Did the club ever ask you to stay on? Maybe not as a manager, but in a different role. No, the club, the chairman spoke to me because I think the results that we got and just the uplift we had um, and the fact that I had two years left in my contract, he, he thought that, that maybe I could, was interested in staying in, and I, I could categorically tell him that I was interested in staying at the club because I had a mortgage to pay. I'd come out a, a contract at Sheffield that I could have still have been there and probably if I'd have been the manager, I'd have put my heart and soul into restructuring the club if I had been in any other capacity and Mixu got another job, I'd have considered moving with Mixu because of my relationship and also because um, just of the circumstances, that, um, like the role that I would have been given. But I definitely was keen to stay and I've definitely got a lot of uh, time for the club and I still keep in contact with, with some of the staff that are there. I think they, they are a, a sleeping giant. I, I think you're, you're done the United, you're done these, you're... you're um, Dunfermlands, they, they, should, they should all be in the Premier League. In my opinion, we should have a 16-team Premier League, but that, that's me going off at a tangent. The Dundee United thing was uh, was unsavoury at the finish. It, it was, from a personal point of view, I finished in a, in a good position, um, but that was down to the contribution I got for the players and the, the three of the games that I took were live on the TV, so I made a commitment or a promise to the players going out of contract that they would all play because I could showcase them I let the foreign players go home so that they could get clubs before the end of the season, you know, be ahead of the game. Um, and I also promised five young players I'd give their debut to. Harry Souter was one that went and got sold for a quarter of a million on the back of two games then. Uh, Jamie Robson, uh, who's a first-team regular. Uh, Matty Smith, who we had up at Cove, who's now over in Ireland. Um, I thought that was the way to gel a, a deflated squad that had been con condemned to relegation. The fact that we had the live games meant that, you know, the training was never a chore and they had something to, you know, focus on. So, again, you know, Sean Dillons, the experienced players, John Rankins, uh, Paul Paytons, uh, Chris Erskine, these are top players. 
uh, players' spittles. There were we we had players that maybe just needed maybe made dropping down to the uh, the championship and and restructuring. Simon Murray, you know, would go on to greater things. Uh, these were all there were there were there were enough quality there that I felt I could have worked with. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave